Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. I'm Maria Norris, and on this week's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with Heidi Kuda. Heidi is an Emmy-winning investigative reporter and a relentless pro-democracy activist. I don't know about you, but I sometimes look at the state of our world and I feel really hopeless. Like a lot of people, I can get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of bad news flooding my feed. It can all feel heavy and bleak and it can take a toll on my mental health. I'm not gonna lie, there are some days where simply getting out of bed is a major battle. In many ways, my conversation with Heidi this week acted as a balm, and I left our recording feeling stronger, more joyful, and more hopeful. And I hope that you will too. So without further ado, here's Heidi. My name is Heidi Sigmund Kuda. I am a veteran investigative reporter and producer. I also write books and I make documentaries. I write screenplays and I tapped out of corporate news in 2013 and have been an independent pro-democracy investigative activist since 2016. We were talking about this um, before we started recording, and I think that's an excellent question to start the podcast. You said that you were talking about when you started doing this kind of work and that you wrote your first blog post when you knew that President Trump was going to win, right. uh, that Trump was going to win the presidency. When did you know that he was going to win? I knew in September of 2016 that Trump was going to win because my mentor in broadcast news investigative reporting told me he was going to win. And my mentor was maybe wrong about like two things the entire 15 years I worked with him. So I knew to take it very seriously. And we can all reflect back to the early part of 2016. I was experiencing a lot of joy in my life. I had you know, just bought a new place with somebody I thought was going to be my forever guy. And the day before the election, I interviewed for an executive position where I would have been making a significant salary because I was in a sea of men at a conference table. And I looked around and clearly they needed to check the box that they had a female executive. We all shook hands. It was lovely. I looked at the office space. And then the next day, Trump, quote unquote, won. He was installed. And then by Wednesday, there was no need to check that box anymore. And I knew we were in for a horrible grind. But I put September of 2016, I pressed send on my very first blog post when I knew Trump would win. And the title of that post was Douchebaggery and Other Things I'd Resigned From. I had investigated Trump during my, my time at local news in Los Angeles. And he always came up on the side of fraud and Ponzi schemes. He was the show pony. They'd trot out these various MLMs to entice people to give up their money in the hope of a get rich quick scheme. And these people didn't realize they were the marks. And I interviewed a lot of them and it was heartbreaking because people thought, here's Trump, this successful businessman, I'm going to give you my money. I'm going to buy into this. And they all lost, many of them lost their life savings. And actually there's a court case still going on against Trump and his oldest children for that, you know, alleged pyramid scheme. I say alleged, it's a freaking pyramid scheme. And when you probe even deeper, you find out 
where does everything lead to the Russian investors for this thing, which I then subsequently found out. But the reason I pressed send on that very first blog, douchebaggery and other things I resigned from is not because I knew Trump was a fraud. It's because I didn't want a guy who used the vocabulary of misogyny and who owned beauty pageants and who rated women on a scale of one to 10 to be our fucking president. Because I, I had a daughter, you know, a teenage daughter at that time. You don't want somebody who rates women on a, on a scale and who had been using words that were weaponized against women in his rise up, what he did to Rosie O'Donnell, you know, the pig comments, the, you know, the, just, just the horrors. And just to explain why I felt so strongly, I think those are all reasons enough is I'd already lived through the eighties. Okay. I already lived through that hideous freaking greed is good decade. And I didn't want these guys back in power because I knew what that would mean for women. And quite frankly, I was right. You were. And what always struck to me, I kind of knew that Trump was going to win. Like I had a feeling that he was going to win after Brexit, after the Brexit vote in the UK, because for me, I just felt that if that can happen here, then there is something in the water, there's something in the air. And the feeling that I had you know, that maybe he's too much of an absurd candidate to win if he does get the, the primary nomination, went away once the Brexit vote went through here. And I was immediately struck once he won, obviously, by the whole horror show of it all. But do you remember during the um, Obama election when uh, he was dragged over the coals, President Obama, for talking about Sarah Palin, comparing her to a pig by saying, you know, you can put a lipstick on a pig. He made a comment about it and he was dragged over the right wing media for being misogynistic, whatever, for making disparaging comments about Sarah Palin. And we look at the list of misogynistic comments that Trump said and yeah. nobody said anything about it from the right wing media. They gave yeah. him a pass. You know, it's a really neat trick that the GOP does where Democrats are always held to the rule of law. Democrats are held to a different standard. Republicans are never held to the rule of law and they are not held to um, the same standard. And Trump literally could go out and shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. And he actually is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And he is still not in prison. Last time I checked, we have not had our perp walk last time I checked. And there are so many both criminal and civil cases that could be brought against Trump as I breathe in this moment that have not been brought against him. And, you know, I just listened a show that I have been producing with Zev Shalev called Narrative Live. We just had a really brilliant attorney on, Rich Signorelli, and he had worked for SDNY and listed the entire litany of things that could that Trump should and could be held accountable for from obstruction of justice to inciting the insurrection to you know all kinds of election fraud both state and local and until we see those perp walks our country's not going to be well and there's a number of reasons maybe why we haven't seen them but but we're not well and i got to say with brexit Obviously, we looked at that as the dry run for what was coming here. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of things, but one of the really incredibly beautiful things about this influence war that we are all grieving our way through and fighting our way through is that I met like 
I met this, this man on Twitter who's from the UK who started feeding me all the information when he was reading my work of what was happening in England. And, and suddenly we grew our strength across continents. And he turned me on to the work of Carol Cadwallader very early. And it was just like this amazing organic network of people who saw something was wrong. And I did this, um, I did this petition very early on in 2017 to demand to see all the dark ads that the Trump campaign used calling Parscale, you know, someone who committed cyber treason. And I wanted to see those ads and match them against the Russian ones on Facebook. And he signed it and he wrote the most beautiful words. And I, I knew this was going to be a revolution. I also knew that Trump was not going to be prosecuted well in office. What I didn't know is that we'd still be saying, where's the prosecutions in October of 2021? And that is a bit crushing, but I haven't given up on democracy yet, or I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing, you know? It reminds me of a Twitter conversation I had earlier today with Professor Sunny Singh. She was talking about, you know, the famous Martin Luther King quote that the arc of justice is long, but bends towards justice. But she was also saying that it doesn't bend by itself. It needs people to push it and to help yeah. it bend. So we can all feel extremely hopeless and I feel hopeless sometimes because yeah. change, the change that we so urgently require seems to be so far away, no matter what we do. But I like that thought that it's bending because we are making it bend because we're not giving up. We're still yes. hoping that we're going to see this change. And that's what you said, that you still believe in democracy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing the work that we do and you wouldn't be doing the work that you do. That's right. We are, I'm, I'm a big believer. I love hope. I love, you know, um, I love embracing every day with gratitude and optimism, but I am a woman of action. Clearly you are too. And I think it's action that is going to be the difference. We can't say, okay, I'm going to take action and then guarantee results. But every day I'm doing something toward exposing the truth behind a lot of the fuckery and exposing the truth behind, you know, the narratives. I stay in contact with all the really, quite frankly, my, my phone is filled with the numbers of the most brilliant people in the world, all across the world. And every one of them is so brave. And every one of them is bringing what is what does Ruth Ben Giat know? She knows Italian history and fascism, right? What does Brent Allpress know in Australia? He's the man smart enough to have looked at Cambridge Analytica's debtors when they when they became bankrupt. And he said, Who do they owe money to? He brought us the glue story, the people you may know story. You know, God, Carol and her relentless work, despite the malinformation campaign against herself, you know, I can, I can go on and on, but, you know, by staying close to these people and my life keeps populating with more and more of them, I can see, like, I, I can zoom out and see a lot of the narratives are all really moving toward the same thing. You follow the money, you know, it becomes overwhelming when you say, oh, there's anti-vax doctors over here and there's, you know, they're, they're pushing homeschooling here. And, you know, what are they doing over here? They're, you know, planning the dark enlightenment, you know, and, and, and what's going on with the Q drops. And it's like, oh my God, you just, 
you know, I, I totally understand it when people want to tap out because it's so painful. My, you know, my life has been crushed multiple times during the last five years because of the work that I do. But I look around and realize I am part of people pushing a narrative. And if I, a narrative of truth, if I pull myself out, that's one less soldier in the war. So I just keep doing it because I do see that the best and the brightest are applying their knowledge to this and we make a difference. I'll give you a small example of that, that I think is actually a very big example. A few months ago, I did a story on disinformation doctors and I spotlighted uh, a doctor who's really fighting against it and gathered a group of doctors together to create a website called no license for disinformation. And Ann Nelson you know, the shadow network, brilliant author connected us. She's a, she's a connector in this. She connects a lot of people. And this one little story on this one little blog ended up leading to, you know, multiple other media attention. And then Zev narrative put both of them on two weeks after we put them on the show, all of a sudden the anti-vax doctors are hacked. It's revealed that they're profiting off of telling people not to get vaccines in the millions. They got banned from YouTube. So in a two week period, by pushing this narrative, which should have been out a year ago, but by pushing it forward, we become part of that zeitgeist that actually starts to see a shift. And so that has to have meaning, right? That's got to be important. So yeah. it's one step at a time towards pushing that arc to bend a little bit further. You know, you talked about hacking. So that is a very good segue to the other question I had, because um, I want to talk about Operation Jane and the epic hack, mm. because I don't think that's made as much of a splash you know, of news here in the UK, but that is quite important. So can you, first of all, tell us what was Operation Jane? I'm getting chills right now because part of what makes great news is somebody who's smart enough to ask the right questions. And I really appreciate you because, um, you know, not everybody's going to roll that deep and care that much to take the time to figure out what we need to know. So thank you. So I, I'm very grateful because the work has connected me to people who are who've come out of retirement, so to speak, because they don't like fascism and they don't like authoritarianism and they're not seeing the justice, you know, that needs to be served to the people who need to receive it. So, so the, the zoom out is that members of anonymous came out of retirement, many of them middle-aged men, and they decided that they would use their school set, their skill set, to to expose some of the most egregious players in the world right now. And so Operation Jane, which I'm actually told has a number of women hacktivists involved, formed because they didn't like what was happening in Texas. You know, I'm from the 70s. I grew up in the 70s, San Francisco. We'd already fought the wars. Okay. Gay was cool. If you needed to get an abortion, that was cool. If you wanted to marry interracially, that was cool. Everything was cool. Well, we've seen what's happened in the last, you know, four or five decades where they're trying to reverse all the things that we already fought for. So you see what happened in Texas with the, you know, abortion, anti-abortion plus the whistleblower, you know, law that they did down there. So 
Operation Jane exposed, they hacked the Texas GOP, they exposed the whistleblower site being linked with this server called Epic, which we'll get to in a second. If you look at the kind of hack that they did on the Texas GOP, and you have to ask yourself, why is the Texas GOP using the same server as all the neo-Nazis and the Holocaust deniers and the gay bashing sites and the exploitation sites and all of that. Why, why would they, why would they, right? Is it just that, you know, white supremacists of a feather flock together? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question to ask, right? And that was just the beginning because what happened two days later, they hacked the server of, of Epic, which again is the hosting, facilitating, anonymizing site for all of the most egregious shit on the internet run by a guy who calls himself a Christian libertarian who then held a prayer meeting after the hack to insert all of his narratives. He was very, I mean, I realized as I was listening to three hours and 40 minutes of this chaotic prayer meeting that he was inserting all the narratives to put his propaganda out in the front line. Very crafty, right? You know, oh, it was just the Russian dev team that we inherited in the backup server that they hacked. Russian dev team held hostage working in the Ukraine. Like what? Like one thing like that after another, right? So he was right. It was the backup server. But what just happened a couple of days ago? The whole entire shebang was dropped. And I believe that's going to unfold like the Panama Papers. I believe that there is so much data there. And my sources tell me that money was being laundered through the domain exchange. I have not verified that. I've just been told that I like to always give the best defense of the person. And, you know, Rob Monster, the name of the CEO, has kind of minimized the impact. But I think it's going to be huge. And because we're on the subject to hacks, let's talk about Oath Keepers. They got hacked as well who are Oath Keepers, the little green men, paramilitary men who show up with their big guns and their, you know, their armor and who clearly were a, a big force at the insurrection, the most grotesque day in modern history. Well, it turns out the hack revealed a lot of them work for the military and the government. And that's just the beginning. And, you know, hacking's like, you know, it's, it's, it's thievery, right? We're supposed to be horrified and offended. And maybe some people are going to go to jail, but right now, because our justice system is not giving us the perp walks. Hello, frenemies. I am very happy to announce that the date for our first anti-fascism book club is Saturday, the 30th of October at 9.30 PM. All monthly supporters of the show will receive an invite to participate in the live recording, which will then either be turned into a bonus episode of the podcast or streamed live on YouTube. Or both, I haven't decided yet. There's still time to earn your spot on the live recording, so check out our coffee link on the episode description. We'll be discussing how fascism works by Jason Stanley, and the winners of our giveaway should be receiving their books this week. Thank you all for supporting the show via coffee and for all of your help trying to get one over Nigel Farage. We got very close to outranking him this week. Remember, there's two ways for a podcast to increase in the rankings. 
one, it needs new subscribers. So please share the show widely. Click the share button on whatever podcast app you use and send it to two, three, five people you know. Ask them to subscribe, follow, and listen to your favorite episodes of Enemies of the People. And secondly, it's reviews. The more people engage with the podcast through reviews and ratings, that helps us climb up the charts. We reached number 80 on the charts, and I know that we will soon outrank him. And now, back to the show. Because we're talking a lot about perp walks and whether or not Donald Trump will be brought to justice. Do you think that, what are the chances, in your opinion, of him being arrested and being brought and being brought to justice or any significant action being taken as a result of the, of the epic hack? Well, I think that there will be no way for our justice departments to ignore what comes from the Epic hack and the Oath Keepers hack. And by the way, this is global. Look at Belarus. There's work that's been done in Myanmar. There's This is global. And very interestingly, from what I understand, these hackers are, and let's call them hacktivists because they're not just doing things willy-nilly, right? From what I understand, they're, they've been going after the millionaires, and I think their intent is to go after the billionaires next, which means that there's just a handful. If you, if you look at QAnon, if you look at any of these phenomenons, there's always a handful of people at the top of the food chain when you really research it. And I'm very grateful to those in the trenches who pay attention to this stuff. And, and quite frankly... We need to shut it the fuck down and and rebuild it because we've let this Pandora's box infect everybody. And there's no family I know who has not been impacted in one way or another, whether it's somebody not getting a vax over here or somebody who's leading an online fantasy life over here, whatever it is, you know, it's all ending up to to not good, you know, but there are people who are profiting always off of it. So that's maybe one side of it. Will Trump be brought to justice? America cannot stand in the way it's it stands if he is not brought to justice. I do believe that he will run for office behind bars. We know from the brilliant work of Ruth Benjiot that um, people like him come to power to hide their corruption and to further their corruption. And, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes people made was thinking in 2016 that the GOP would hold Trump to the fucking fire. No, they did not. They got their judges and their tax breaks, and that's all they care about. The GOP, as far as I'm concerned, is no longer a political party. They are a death cult. They have promoted, you know, death in our country and they did nothing to stop it. And they prevented Trump being held accountable while in office. And there were many reasons why he should be, but the GOP under McConnell backed him up. So, so will he be held accountable? I think that if he's not held accountable soon, and if his family is not held accountable soon, that you can expect the same majority, and there's a lot more of us than there are of him, to actually take to the streets like you saw in South Korea until there is accountability. Two schools of thought again. One is that Merrick Garland is 
working on a vast indictment, which will encompass a lot of what we've just talked about, and that Trump and his children will be indicted for multiple, you know, multiple criminal activity. We've got New York actively working on their part of this. You've got what's happening in Georgia. So that's possible. The other possibility is that there is a fear that the country will implode in civil war if anything is, you know, if if he is brought to justice. Although I do think that I do think that a perp walk would wake up a lot of people. Ruth always talks about how what snapped people out of their Hitler love in the 40s was bombs being dropped on on their heads. I think a Trump perp walk where he's, you know, no longer has a wig, you know, no longer has lifts, you know, doesn't have the tanning bed. And we really see what this essentially he functions as a mob boss. So let's not, you know, dance around that. Let's see what he really looks like. And I do think that people who've been brainwashed by their Fox and their Owen on their, their OANs and their Newsmax and their churches and their pastors who many of the pastors are taking these talking points and they're acting like, you know, gang leaders themselves. I think many of them will possibly snap out of it. All the people from what I understand on cult behaviors are actually still inside those bodies, but they need to be nurtured back out to reality and perhaps what I just described, you know, Trump looking like he really like, like Vincent, the chin, you know, like what he really looks like might actually wake people up. So I'd love to say definitively, yes, we will have justice, but we may end up really having to demand it. It's interesting because I always think about Jason Stanley's book, how fascism works. And one of the key tools of fascism that he talks about is creating and maintaining a state of unreality where you don't believe anything. And I do wonder if the shock of seeing Trump unmasked yeah. with legitimate you know, charges against him would be that shock that's necessary to jolt some people, perhaps not all the people, but enough people out of the state of unreality that they've been living under for so long. Yes, we only need we only need a few of those tens of millions. You know, we just need some of them, enough of them. I think that the danger, of course, is that an industry has been built up around him. So you're going to have the Michael Flynn's of the world and the Steve Bannon's of the world and the Eric Prince's of the world and the Peter Thiel's of the world and the Roger Stone's of the world harnessing that and using it to get people all crazed and riled up. But if we can continue as truth tellers and pro-democracy truth act in all of our circles all around the globe, if we can continue exposing them, then maybe some of the power will be taken away from them. And what's so interesting is I'm so well aware that truth has no resources. I've been doing this for five years. And just a couple months ago, I decided I'm going to do a tip your activist account because I'm going to see if anyone cares turns out they do care. But I know that when someone's buying me a $3 cup of coffee, I'm investigating a billionaire who makes $250 million a day. So I see the inequities, you know, there's so much money put into malinformation, disinformation. There's just a machine behind it, but it's a David and Goliath story. And wouldn't it be beautiful if we win? 
You know, we have ways to do it, but we need the kind of bold leadership that's going to be fearless. And right now I'm seeing it through activism and hacktivism more so than I'm seeing it from our leaders. Yes, I see the same here where the political opposition is not as good at holding people to account and exposing the truth of what's happening as activists, as people like the who work for the Byline Times, as journalists, etc. For many reasons, but a lot of it, I think, is political cowardice because um, there is this belief here in the UK that, for example, the conservatives have been in power for so long because of, of immigration and because the public is anti-immigration and therefore must also be anti-immigration in order to win back votes. So there is this, this cowardice and this inability to educate people, this unwillingness to, to educate people. And I also think it's deeply offensive to voters because not, I don't, I refuse to believe that this entire country is anti-immigrant. I think that a lot of people have been misled to blame immigration for their problems when the problems are the systemic failings of the government. And I think there is a real failure of creativity, originality, but bravery in the British political opposition to speak the simple truth that the problem has never been immigration. The problem is our voting system is antiquated and unrepresentative. Our leaders are corrupt and determined to damage our democracy. And this is why they're responsible for hundreds and thousands of unnecessary deaths here in the UK too, not only through the coronavirus pandemic, but through their incredibly cruel immigration policies here in the UK, and not to mention the decades of austerity that have cut money to and funding and support to the most vulnerable of us. There's been so much research showing the unnecessary deaths of austerity, but you don't see this from the opposition, at least not from the leaders of our opposition. I know that similarly, there are a lot of issues with the Democratic Party in the US, but I do think that I see more signs of hope and opposition from the Democratic Party than I see from the opposition parties here in the UK. It's it's amazing. I love smart women. <laughs> so I'm so happy to meet you. Like hearing you talk is just like music, like, oh, you know, it makes me so happy. So in 2017, I knew I'd be voting for Joe Biden. I knew I'd be voting for him as a Band-Aid on the fuckery of what we just lived through. What I didn't know is how truly great a man he is. And how truly, you know, how, how truly with integrity he carries himself. He's a man of character. And, and so I have been so grateful that we thwarted an authoritarian in the middle of authoritarian capture. And that's what we really did. And you saw how hard Trump tried to fight it in every way, very, you know, overtly illegal ways. And our country voted in a man of character who's really busy mopping up the mess and trying to do great policies and all of that. And I'm so grateful to him and Kamala for what they're doing. I do think that the Democratic Party has to take off the white fucking wigs and realize that the world has changed and we need to be nimble. And if that means we got to get down in the mud a bit and fight this uh, in more of a street brawl sense, and we got to do that. The Old ways of doing things do not work right now because we are facing a kind of evil we haven't seen before. Biden is a wartime president. There's no question. We are in a war. It's an influence war. We've been in it for some time. Some people are calling it World War III. I tend to believe that. I think a cyber war is just 
so sinister because so many people can't see it. They know they're riled up. They know they don't like their neighbor anymore. They know that they're not talking to their dad anymore. You know, what is their kid doing over here? You know, putting a, you know, a, a cue on the lawn. Like there's all this weird stuff and people aren't quite able to quite put it together. So I do think that executive orders need to be signed. Steve Hassan, the incredible, you know, cult expert who really understands this world because he was indoctrinated into the Moonies in uh, the 70s. So Dr. Steve Hassan said, we need something like the Manhattan Project for this cyber war. We are essentially, he believes like this, this whole data cyber thing is the new nuclear arms race. And he's right. We need to get out ahead of it. And we have the ability to do that. And why we don't, I don't know. But if you look at the Oath Keepers hack and you realize that military and government members are a part of that, and you look at what happened in Michigan at the kidnapping of the governor, and you find out that somebody in a position of authoritarian, you know, authority within the government is behind that in, within intelligence, you're like, okay, well, we have a serious infection. But there's always more of us and there are of them. And so we do need to crush them with executive orders, sanctions, and something as big and bold as like the Manhattan Project applied to what we're going through right now. The other thing I will say, because you mentioned the immigrant issue, I'm a daughter of immigrants. My parents immigrated from Germany and it was ugly. And they starved. It was war-torn period. And and immigrants make great Americans. Same in Britain. Britain, as much as it tries to pretend it's not, it's a country of immigrants. It has always been a country of immigrants. It's an island that had an empire that had people moving in and out. And it's this and I think it's similar with the US that there is this, this dual forces of a denial of history the denying, denying the importance of, of immigration and all of it, and also a consolidation of a history of white supremacy at the same time that it's leading us to where we are today. And I remember when Trump lost the election and over those days when they were still counting, I watched, I was glued to the TV. I couldn't work, even though I am not American, I'm British and I live in Britain because I knew that Trump losing the election would have a ripple effect because I can only imagine how much worse things would be here in the UK if he was still president, because I strongly, strongly believe our prime minister, Boris Johnson, was counting on Trump being president to use his support in all of his policies in here, because in many ways, Boris Johnson is the British version of Donald Trump. And I think things here would have been so much worse if Trump had remained in power, not just here, but globally as well. So what happened in the U.S. has repercussions everywhere. So Trump losing, yes, it had major ramifications. And I look at Boris Johnson and I think he's just so dangerous because he has that likability factor that Trump really didn't have as far as I'm concerned. And I think Boris is just so dangerous about the, 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 the problem with Trump, not okay. So, so he didn't win, which was brilliant. We haven't even had a second to breathe, to enjoy that moment. And the problem is the art of war tells you if a dictator retains any power, even the smallest amount of power, he'll be back. And it will it will be used to try to crush to crush everybody again. And so what's happened is Trump and Michael Flynn and the Bannons, because they have not been silenced, they have not had justice. You know, 
There could be pardon fraud. That's another thing that Trump could could be facing because he's still out there creating the shadow government and giving his 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 hillbilly revivals. You know, we are we're in trouble. And, and again, it goes back to what we were saying originally, until we see that the true man without his wig in handcuffs paraded down Fifth Avenue. I, 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 I don't want to say I fear because fear is just a, a negative thing that doesn't get us anywhere. But I think we need to make sure, A, that happens and B, that he has no power ever again from behind bars or whatever. He had a whole lifetime of criminality. And because he was wealthy and entitled, he always settled on the courtroom steps. So he was never held accountable. Look at the very first headline that happened when Trump came into office. $25 million settlement for Trump University, another one of his Ponzi schemes. Like that's alarming. And again, because the GOP is not held to the same standard as the Democrats. That's barely a ripple. It's ridiculous to even hear myself say it, but imagine if President Obama, his first headline was a $25 million settlement. The right-wing propaganda machine would have never let it go to rest. And, uh, And that's another problem. Our freedoms are being used against us to dismantle our democracy. If, if Germany can have laws against hate speech, then America can too. And we can't just continually allow the First Amendment to be the thing that's thrown out there when people are, are committing criminal acts, when they're encouraging people to not believe science. And then those same people who trust those people they're getting their information from then die of COVID because they didn't get a vaccine because our freedoms allowed some fucking charlatan to say it was okay. And meanwhile, the work that we do shows those charlatans profit off of their messaging to people to not get vaccinated or whatever the messaging is. So we got a lot of work. And again, I'm going to go back to bold leadership. I will say I worked a campaign in 2018 as the director of communications to take out a congressman called Dana Rohrabacher, Russia's favorite congressman. Many things happened where my life was blown up online and offline at the same time. But I will say that there are plants within the Democratic Party who are actually Republicans, who then put a D behind their name. And then suddenly we wonder why we have a major dysfunction in Congress. And uh, I think that we need exposure on that as well. There's so much we could have talked about even more. I mean, there are questions I didn't even get a chance to ask about Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew, Brett Kavanaugh. But I think the main question that I want to get to the end is that, and you've talked about this a little bit, is that we all have, a, all of us have moments of hopelessness in living in the world that we live in. And what is your advice for people, young people, old people, whoever, who are listening and who are living through this time and are trying to hope you know, that there will be a better time, that the arc will bend towards justice. I'm an old punk rocker. And so I interviewed all the punk front men throughout my career and Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, his advice really sticks out. You see a problem, spend half a day trying to solve it. I've lived my life like that. I see a problem, I spend half a day trying to solve it. I try to reach out to the smartest minds I know 
who are the experts in their field, whether it's taxation, fascism, science, whatever it is, I, I find the top person and say, what do you know about this? And then I just write it down, you know, I'm able to push it through. What I've had to do since, since writing doesn't pay anymore and this type of independent work doesn't pay anymore, I've just tried to figure out ways to sustain myself while I continue to push out truth. And I just finished a book project. I'll be doing another one. So I figure out a way to try to like keep myself afloat while still sticking to doing this type of work. I think the other thing is that if you take, if you, if you continually take some kind of positive action every day, you're going to feel like you're part of a whole and then you become part of a whole. I think my secret sauce is I haven't had a television since 2006. So, so I produce TV news and I stay in the game, but I can't watch it. I find the corporate controlled media to be toxic and Vichy. So, so I, I would recommend just throwing your television out the window. You can still get the clips of anything that's important online. You can still stream whatever shows that you love, read everything. Everything originates in print. If you are afraid to enter this war, which I understand, then support it. If you have money and you can support an independent activist or Patreon, you know, wherever, that's something that you can do. Obviously, these public servants work for us. And if they don't hear from you, they're going to think they're doing okay. So let them know that you're not okay with whatever it is they're doing. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we had a march yesterday. You know, we've got our feet. When I went to the Women's March in 2017, I met a 100-year-old woman who came with a wheelchair. She was born before women had the right to vote. But she showed up with her wheelchair and she rolled through the streets of Washington because she had to be there on the most important day in women's history. So we can all do something. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heidi, not just for coming on the show, but for the work that you do and for your kind words about my own work and everything and your support. It means a lot to me. So thank you. Oh, your work's important. I don't think we talk about the way misogyny and the vocabulary of misogyny has been weaponized against us time and time again. So, so I'm honored to meet you. Your work's really important. Thank you. That was Heidi Kuda. Heidi is a wonderful human being whose work is vital in undoing all the harm that extremism and fascism has wrought in our world. You can find her on Twitter at Heidi underscore Kuda. Heidi and I have both written for the Byline Times, and I'm excited to announce that next week's guest is none other than Peter Jukes, the CEO of Byline and the executive editor of Byline Times. Tune in next week to hear us talk about Brexit, Rupert Murdoch, and the health of the British media. Frenemies, remember, the date for our first anti-fascism book club is Saturday the 30th of October at 9.30pm. All monthly supporters of the show will receive an invite to participate in the live recording. There's still time to earn your spot, so check out our coffee link on the episode description. This week we got close to getting one over Nigel Farage, and I know that we will get there soon. Don't forget to share the show, subscribe, follow, and tell everyone you know. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time for more Enemies of the People.